0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and he touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ.
1: Again, welcome. Good morning. It's a delight to have all of you. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations, the thoughts of all of our hearts pleasing and acceptable to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is the final Sunday in the season of Epiphany, which always marks Jesus' transfiguration, which we just read of. Epiphany begins with Jesus' baptism and it ends with his transfiguration, which is not simply the arc of this season, but also the arc of the entire Christian life, because what we see here with Jesus is also meant to happen with us. That is the, the great hope of the Christian faith, that someday we would be Transfigured, We would shine and radiate from the inside out with the very life and presence of God himself. And so in other words, Jesus didn't simply come to be transfigured before us. He came that he might transfigure us before others. And so I think we need to ask, is that happening to us? Is that happening to you even now? Are you being Transfigured. Because in one sense, we all are, our lives in this world are not static. We all know that. We are all being transfigured. We're all being changed into something. And so into what and by whom or by what are you being changed? And questions like those are Lenten questions. Because that's another aspect of Transfiguration Sunday. It's also a amazing turning point in the church's year because Lent begins on Wednesday with Ash Wednesday. So please worship with us. Don't miss it. Don't let it sneak up on you. Lent always begins immediately following Transfiguration Sunday, and Transfiguration Sunday this year also followed immediately on the heels of Valentine's Day. It's not always the case. Uh, This is my 17th Transfiguration Sunday here at All Saints, and it's only the fourth time that Valentine's Day fell in the week leading up to it. And um, I read this week that 65% of men don't plan or make any advanced plans for Valentine's Day, which is not that big of a shocker, but here it is a shocker. $165 on average is what we spend per couple or so on Valentine's Day, which is about $21 billion collectively. And 1.7 billion of that 21 billion is not spent on people, but upon pets. That means, 30, statistically speaking, 30% of us spent money on our pets for Valentine's Day. I don't even begin to understand that. But Alyssa and I didn't celebrate Valentine's Day this year. I figured out dinner. I did the dishes. I paid one of my sons to go and buy flowers for her for all of us. She bought herself a gift and called it a gift for me, which is so very romantic, uh, just like our New Testament passage, First Corinthians chapter 13, which was read at our wedding. It's probably read at some of yours as well. It's actually not a romantic passage. It's not about romantic love. It's about God. It's about God's love and how he loves. And the transfiguration is similar. The transfiguration is a revelation of God and how he loves. So how does God love? What does God's love look like? And so two points this morning to answer that. Unveiling, number one. Number two, establishing. First of all, unveiling. I assume that many of you are familiar with this story because we read it and we preach from it each and every year here at All Saints. Most of the churches across the world do, because it's a watershed moment in the life of Christ. It is the most unambiguous revelation of who he is as the Messiah and the Son of God. Prior to the resurrection, there's nothing else like it. The text says here that he is metamorphosized. That's the Greek word, metamorpho, which we get our word metamorphosis from. We translate it transfigured meaning his figure, his very physical body is unmistakably and shockingly altered. Verse two says that his face shone like the sun. It's the brightest and most powerful source of light that the authors can think of. And that's what they compare to what they see in Jesus' face. Verse two says his clothes became white as light. And so think about that phrase, white as light, not white as snow or white as wool or white as ivory, white as as light. It was so bright that the light made his clothes look almost invisible. So much so did his, his reality, his identity shine through it. And that would get your attention. That would wake you up. Regardless of what's going on in your life, regardless of what sort of slumber or doldron you might have slipped into. In fact, Luke says that the disciples in this moment were heavy with sleep. So read that literally, but read it spiritually too. They were heavy with this sort of spiritual slumber until. A far greater heaviness blasted out upon them. The inescapable, otherworldly, divine light of Jesus's identity blasted out upon them, and that gets their attention. It wakes them up. It should us as well to make every worry, concern, or thought vanish in the blink of an eye, if our eyes could even blink if we were to see this. So a question that we have to begin with this morning is do you need for God to get your attention? Or are there other things shining more brightly than him in your life and in your mind even this morning? Do you need to be woken up? Because we're meant to be woken up here, meant to be brought to attention at the transfiguration so in part that we can follow Jesus more fully as we walk through Lent following him. But a problem for us in all of that is familiarity. How many times have y'all read this passage? How many times have some of you some of you have been here for a long time with me. How many times have you heard me preach on this very passage? Uh, how many times has Lent, the season of Lent, Ash Wednesday even, come and gone without you giving much attention or much thought to it? Because familiarity can be deadly to the spiritual life. You all know that I grew up in Enid, Oklahoma. Uh, I grew up on Bobolink Lane, which was about 50, maybe 70 yards away from a train track. And the first time that I brought Alyssa home to Enid, we were in our living room, I still remember it, all of a sudden a look of shock crossed her face. She snapped to attention instantly and because what was happening is the train was rumbling by and the, the conductor was blasting the horn and she asked, what is that? And what did I say? How did I respond? What is what? And it's not that it wasn't loud. It's not that it wasn't there. It's just that it had little to no effect on me. That happens in our lives with passages like this. It happens in our life in our relationship with God. So has this happened to you with this passage specifically or Jesus more generally? Because at some point, we're all like James, John, and Peter here. At some point, we all become heavy with a spiritual slumber, and we need to be snapped into attention. We need to start paying attention. That's in part what the passage is saying. Start paying attention to God, so are you, because what happens here is that Jesus gets unveiled; he gets seen from the inside out, and his humanity for a few moments doesn't veil or hide his deity, but his divine nature shines through it. So much so that it it, it overwhelms the disciples. There are three words here that all come from the same word group. The word shown in verse two here is this word "lampson." We get our word. Lamp from it in English exactly. Then the word light in verse 2, same word group, the word the word bright in verse 5 describes this cloud that ascends. They're all synonyms. And the point is, is that Jesus' true, full, divine nature shines here. So much so that it's blinding. And what does Peter do? What's his response? Good old Peter. Always makes me feel better about myself when I read about him in the scriptures. Always quick to speak, slow to listen always paying attention to that, which he shouldn't be paying attention to even here. And so what does he do? What is his suggestion? Verse four, he tells them that they should erect three tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah who have all showed up. And it's weird that Moses and Elijah have showed up, but it's even more strange and odd, probably to our ears that Peter makes the suggestion. But why is this Peter's response? It's not a good one. We know that because in verse five, God, the father interrupts Peter and him speaking. Before any answer can be given to his silly suggestion, God interrupts him, and then Peter winds up along with James and John on their faces, frightened. Both Mark and Luke make the comment that Peter didn't know what he was saying. If you don't know what's happening and you don't know what to say, here's a suggestion. Don't say anything. Don't do anything, but that's not Peter. So it's a bad response, but regardless of how bad or dumb it is, why this response? Why Tents. And to answer that, we have to think biblically for a second. Because in the Old Testament, before the temple was built, there was a tent called the Tabernacle. The temple really served as God's house. It was his dwelling place on earth. And everyone, all of Israel, and all the people around Israel, in fact, would come to that tent in order to be near to God. And so Peter wants that again. He wants to stay. Even if his experience has been frightening. Even it's been confusing, it's the greatest experience of transcendence and awe and meaning that he has ever known. It was the mountaintop experience of all mountaintop experiences, and he didn't want it to end. He didn't want to come down from that mountain and from that high, that exhilaration. And we all know what that's like in different ways or different forms. None of us want the thrill or the passion of a new romance to end or to decline. And so what do we do? Well, some of us move on to another lover, or someone else that we might date, to another spouse. Even that's some of our stories, in order to stay up on the mountain and experience that. Or we bounce from one new interest or in one new hobby to another. And one day it's brewing beer and playing tennis. The next day it's high end bourbon and mahjong. And we go from one interest to the other. I mean, that's funny but true. But we do, and and those are innocuous things in many respects. But what if we do that with people? What if we do that with friends? What if we do that with jobs or with neighborhoods or with cities? We, we love the thrill and the experience, but then when it, wa- when it wanes, when it declines, we just move on. Because at some point, we all know what it's like to try to use something or to use someone to stay up on the mountain and to keep the temporary thrill or delight of transcendence as palatable as possible for as long as possible. In fact, that's really what addiction is whether with pornography or alcohol or drugs, whether it's a substance addiction or a process addiction, that's what we do. We all know this experience. Many of us know it very, very acutely. That first taste takes you high, but then it declines. And so you, you, you look for another taste, but that same taste, that same amount doesn't take you as high as the first one. And then you, you repeat and you repeat, but before too long, the highs don't last as long or they're not as high, but also the lows come more quickly. The lows last longer and they take you lower. And so you get into this uh, this cycle of trying to get higher and higher and higher, but you end up lower and lower and lower. And that is addiction. And that's Peter here. It's using something to secure for yourself an experience or a taste of transcendence and bliss. And we all know what it's like to some degree in some way. And Peter doesn't want it to end. He doesn't want to leave. We might ask, what about his wife? Down the mountain. What about the other disciples down the mountain? What about their ministry down the mountain? He doesn't think about any of it. He just wants to stay with no regard for anyone else, only himself. And friends, that is not love. That is not 1 Corinthians 13. Love cannot stay, it will not stay, up on the mountain for the sake of self. Love always comes down to others, for others. And that is what is especially being unveiled to us this morning about God. That is who he is and what he's like. He will always come down for the sake of others, even you, regardless of where you are, regardless of how low you are. He always comes down. And so are you sleepy this morning? Are you spiritually sleepy to and toward true transcendence, which is only found with Him? Because in Jesus being unveiled, we ourselves are unveiled. In seeing Him for who He is, He truly shows us who we are. So, how do you look this morning? How do you look from the inside out? So, that's unveiling. But, secondly, second point establishing. What gets established here more than anything else is Jesus' Word. On so many levels, that's the main point. Because Jesus transfigured here before Peter, James, and John. Then Moses and Elijah show up, and then God the Father speaks, all for the sake of coming to this climactic moment where God the Father says, listen to him. And then at the very end of it all, everyone's gone. Moses and Elijah are gone. Everything's gone. And all they see is Jesus only. So that's what gets established. Jesus gets established here. His word gets established. Now, listen, I went with some friends on Thursday night to see Bruce Springsteen in concert at the Moody Center. Did any of y'all go? There we go. It was quite a concert, wasn't it? That man is 73 years old. It is shocking. Not only does he still have his voice, he still has his body. It's as if this man has never aged. He didn't take a break for three hours of a concert. I took a break. I went to the bar. I went to the bathroom. I went to multiple places. I took a break. Bruce Springsteen didn't take a break whatsoever. And he's a year older than my dad. It is unbelievable. But also, it's not just his gravelly voice or his hard charging power ballads that have made them this icon of American culture. Uh, it's, it's not only because he, I think, understands and has captured the essence of the American dream uh, and, and American in general, but also I think he's captured something of what it means to be human and the human dream and what we truly need as humans. Uh, there's there's this, there's this album called Nebraska. Do you know this album? Uh, it's, it's an acoustic album. It's mostly guitar and harmonica. And it's incredibly haunting, so many of the songs. But one song in particular it's truly beautiful and sad. It's this track, My Father's House. And in this song, the singer has a dream about himself as a child, trying to make it home through the forest to his father's house before the darkness falls upon him. And he hears these ghostly voices calling to him. And this is what he sings as those ghostly voices ring out in his ears. He says, I ran with my heart pounding down that broken path with the devil snapping at my heels. I broke through the trees and there in the night, my father's house stood shining hard and bright. The branches and the brambles tore at my clothes and scratched my arms. But I ran till I fell shaking in his arms. And that's the beautiful part of this song. I think as Christians, we should hear in that that dream, the story that we believe is behind all stories, which is everybody's stories, that we're all like this little child in this dream, all searching, all needing to get home to our father and to our father's house. He beautifully captures it. But this is the sad part of the song. The sad part's the second half. And it has the singer waking up and going to his actual father's house because they're estranged. And this is what he sings. He sings, I walked up the steps and stood on the porch. A woman I didn't recognize came and spoke to me through a chained door. I told her my story and who I'd come from. She said, I'm sorry, son, but nobody by that name lives here anymore. And if that's not sad enough, it finishes with my father's house shines hard and bright. It stands like a beacon calling me in the night, calling and calling so cold and alone, shining across this dark highway where our sins lie unatoned. And some of you know that. We all know that, but some of you know it acutely because that is life in this world. We all know what our sins have done. We all know the way that our sins, our brokenness pull us apart from that which God has joined us together. We all know that what it's like to to experience this type of estrangement and loneliness? Because this is life in this world. Dark highway, sins lie unatoned. The question is, how do we get through it? If this is the world, and if Bruce Springsteen captures it so acutely, how do we get through this world? In order to get through it, we need one voice. And we need one word that we listen to, and so what is that word or that voice for you? Because Moses and Elijah show up here to raise that very question of whose word has a final authority in your life. Because he shows up here in order to say that Jesus should have the ultimate and final authority, his word, over any and everyone else. Because Moses represents all of the Old Testament law. Elijah, as, as the height of the Old Testament prophets, represents all the prophets. So together they represent the entire Old Testament. And Jesus's word supersedes both of them because he fulfills them. God the Father doesn't say, listen to them, which would have made perfect sense to Peter, James, and John. Add Jesus's word to their word. Add his words to the religious leaders that have come before him. He doesn't say that. And in fact, at the very end, Moses and Elijah aren't there at all. All they see is Jesus only. And again, God the Father interrupts Peter because Peter tries to add his word to that which is transpiring. God cuts him off as if to say, don't listen to yourself. Don't listen to your own heart. Don't trust your own heart. That's what we hear. That's what our culture tells us to do with all the individualism and the the hyper-focus upon ourselves, That's what we believe. Our hearts will never lead us astray. Listen to your own heart. Your own heart, your own word has the final authority. No. He doesn't say, listen to yourself. He says, listen to him. Don't let your word lead you to take actions and matters into your own hands because that's what Peter does. This what Sarah in the Old Testament does as well. Do you remember Sarah? You remember that story? Married to Abraham. God has promised Abraham he'll be the father of many nations, that in his family, all the, all the families of the world will be blessed, but he's married to Sarah, and Sarah's barren, and Sarah can't deal with it. And so what does she do? Takes matters into her own hands. Makes the suggestion, here, take my servant and have a child with her. Fulfill God's word, not through me, but through her. And how does that work out for them? Terribly, terribly for that woman, for that child, for Abraham, for Sarah, for everyone. It wrecks everything. So trying to say the right thing when you don't know what to say, trying to do the right thing when you're not sure what to do, trying to make good on God's word for him instead of waiting for him to act. Both Sarah and Peter jump into action and they start talking and talking and talking. Their ideas, their wants, their words rule their lives and it makes an absolute mess of everything. And so God here says, listen to him, not them, regardless of who the they might be. If it adds to Jesus's word, if it contradicts his word, if it supersedes his word, it won't work. It will wreak havoc. And you know what else it'll do? If any word, yours or anyone else's, any, any other religious leader, any other leader at all, political or otherwise, any teacher, if it adds to, supersedes, contradicts Jesus' word, it will also keep you high. It will keep you high because that's what Peter's word attempts to do with Jesus. If Jesus listens to Peter, if Jesus stays up on the mountain with Moses and Elijah, just one voice among other voices to be considered, what does it keep Jesus from? it keeps him from coming down and not only healing this boy but healing anyone because it keeps him from going to the cross and dying under the consequences of our sin and it keeps him from establishing self-giving and even suffering as the only way of life through this world for him or for any of us in fact you know what precedes the transfiguration in all of the gospels and all the synoptic gospels Matthew Mark Luke what immediately precedes the transfiguration is Jesus talking about the cross And him saying, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, it will find it. He talks about the cross and Peter immediately says, no, no, don't, don't go to the cross for us. Don't go to the cross for me. Stay up on the mountain. Because if you go that low for us, if you go that low for me, that means that's who God is. That means that's who God is and that's what he's like. And then that also means that that's who I am made to be like. And I don't want that. I don't want you to go low for me because I don't want to have to, in uh, in response, go low for anyone else. I don't want to give up my life. I want to take and I want to use and I want to stay high and strong and safe. So Peter says no to the cross, but God the Father says yes. Jesus talks about the cross and he says, listen to him because that is what love looks like with God. Love is patient and kind. It bears all things. It endures all things, even the cross. Love never fails. God never fails. He never fails to come down for others, even us, and do for us what we could never do for ourselves which is to bear the cost of our own sin, defeat death and evil and sin, and rise from the dead in order to share his very life and his very love with us, that he might live within us and that we might radiate with his very life and love the very presence of God out to others and that we might come down to others, for others. That is God. And that is us if we belong to him in baptism and by faith. If you belong to Jesus, or if you would, That second half of the song of Bruce Springsteen's that I mentioned to you, it's not true of you. Only the first half. Because you are not alone. Regardless of who you are and where you find yourself this morning, you are not alone on some dark highway, somewhere where your sins lie unatoned. They're atoned. Jesus has gone to the cross. And you have fallen shaking into your father's arms because Jesus has brought you home to your father's house. So listen to him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would give us the grace necessary to do that which we read of and we see here in this passage, that you would enable us to listen to your Son. For we know that in his words, we find all things, all things necessary for life, for joy, for peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.